You're listening to Family Feud, part of the Paris Style Podcast family. They might not be brother and sister, but they sure do fight like they are. Here's your hosts, Keely Yor and Shotgun Spratling. Welcome to another episode of Family Feud Podcast. I'm your host, Keely Yor, joined alongside Shotgun Spratling. Today we're going to talk about USC officially hiring Cliff Kingsbury as offensive coordinator and quarterbacks coach. We're also going to talk about the Trojans' 2019 schedule that was just released this week. And then we're also going to tackle the questions you sent us via Twitter and email. We got a lot, Shotgun, so I'm looking forward to getting to those. Yeah, thanks for sending us your questions, guys. Looking forward to jumping into this. I mean, Cliff Kingsbury, some news that was... I don't know, a week old almost, but we finally got the official word from USC. You know, there have been some back and forth, you know, with the national media and all that stuff. But, uh, you know, finally make the decision, finally make it official. USC now has an offense coordinator. You could say we're going to cliff dive on this podcast. Oh, no. <laughs> you, are, you are way too hyped up on caffeine right now. I, <laughs> it's a tolerance thing. I haven't had it for a while. I had it. I'm sorry, guys. I'd like to apologize to everyone. The caffeine is flowing through my veins. But as a reminder, you can subscribe to us on iTunes, Google Play, and Audio Boom. You can also send us questions and submissions to our podcast at familyfeudpod at gmail.com. Um, so if you haven't gotten the, the idea already, it's going to be a different type of podcast than we usually do. We don't really have stock up, stock down because we don't really have much to talk about. I mean, uh, like game-wise. Oh, we got plenty to talk about. Uh, okay, but I misspoke. But we have things to, to address. Stock up USC's offense. Yeah, stock up morale, you could say. Uh, but first off, Cliff Kingsbury announced as USC's offensive coordinator and quarterbacks coach. Shotgun, like you said, this was a week old. We had reported it a week ago. Five days before the official announcement is when we had heard that there was a deal in principle had been made. Um, and then there was some back and forth with national media saying, no, it's not happening, which sounded a little bit like it was the agent trying to you know push for a little bit more. But it ends up the, the deal was made, uh, officially signed and sealed. Delivered. And, and I guess delivered delivered <laughs> to our inboxes. Uh, you know, the USC uh, statement and everything with Clay Helton's words and the official press release on Tuesday. So USC now has an offense coordinator. And, you know, a lot of expectations now for that offense. I was going to ask you, what were your initial thoughts now that this is official? What do you think this does for the team going forward? I, I mean, you got to be excited if you're an offensive player. That was where they struggled. And you, you, you look at the games they lost, you know, you, their last four losses are all by a touchdown or, or less. You assume that with Cliff Kingsbury, you're going to score an extra touchdown a game. Uh, you know, you just feel like with a dedicated offense coordinator, someone coming from you know high-profile offenses that have, been, that have ranked really well for you know a number of years in a row, basically, you know that USC's offense is going to take a step forward. The mismosh kind of thing that was going on with Clay Helton and Tyson Helton and T. Martin and who was calling the plays. Now you've brought in someone who is so highly uh, regarded and highly sought after by other teams that you're going to have to have given him autonomy of this offense. There's no way he would have signed this deal if he was like, well, I'm, I still might call some plays here and there, Cliff. I'm like, no, coach, you're not. I got this. You want me? Then I'm taking over this. This is going to be my deal. So I think that eliminates some of the question marks we've had about the offense, about who's actually calling the plays and a lot of that stuff. And I think you're going to have a more succinct offense. I think it's going to, you know, plays are going to develop upon each other. I think that there is going to be maybe even an identity. To the offense. Yeah, I was about to say, can they, can we officially put to rest that balance is not an identity? You know, that's what bothered me so much is that there wasn't actually a clear identity of what this team was offensively. 
and you didn't know coming into a game what exactly could they take advantage because they kind of change per opponent, you know, and and whether or not their offensive line worked that day or not, you know, it, there wasn't a you know what you're gonna get. It's it was more of a jump gumbo offense. <laughs> that was the official term. Okay, the yeah. we'll have to spell that out later. Um, you know, it just seemed like there was a lot of grab bagging. You know, there'd, yeah. be, there'd be different formations, and there'd only be a player to run out of it. And then there wasn't, like I said, there's not, there weren't building upon previous plays. You're not setting up a lot of other plays, and and it seemed like. You know, they had a really good script coming into a lot of games. They yeah. did really well in the first quarters uh, of, of games this season. They came out, out uh, of games really well offensively. But then things, when there were adjustments made on the field by opponents, you know, they didn't really adjust quick enough to them. And you know, then there was all the talk about, we got to see the tape. Or they threw stuff at us that we didn't see before. With Kingsbury, he, you know, even as a head coach, he was still making offensive adjustments enough that their offenses were really good. Now he split, you know, his time is split apart, you know, as a, as a head coach and also the offense coordinator, you know, previously at Texas Tech, but he was still their offense was still good because he was able to make those adjustments and, you know, the guys that are up in the booth helped him out and everything like that. Uh, I think that Clay Helton struggled with that, you know, when he took over the play calling duties officially from T Martin late in the season. I think that was part of the issue. Is that you're being pulled in all the other different directions as a head coach, and you know trying to be the CEO, trying to you know make sure your special teams has 11 guys on the field, make sure that your defense is playing the guys you want, you know, make sure that the sideline is you know into the game and different things. You're, you're trying to do uh, fulfill you know wear a lot of hats as a head coach, and then if you add on the play calling. Okay, now you're trying to decipher what the defense exactly is doing rather than, you know, maybe doing all the motivational stuff that you would be just as a head coach. I think now Clay Helton can focus on that. And I think it's better for him. I think so too. That he's not trying to do too much. I, I think that, you know, especially when you fire Neil Callaway, granted you bring up Mike Goff and he helps out and you've got a bunch of guys, you know, that are analysts and stuff that can help out or experienced guys. But I think when you lose a full time coach and the players lose their position coach, I think it makes it that much more difficult for a head coach, and that's an extra thing he has to do then because he has to fill in a little bit at, with the offense line. He has to fill in a little bit here, a little bit here. And then you add on throw, calling the plays yourself. I just think it was too much to try to do. Uh, so I think this move will, will be really good for the offense because I think it will streamline it a little bit. You know, There's a lot of different things you can do with the air raid type of offense, if you want to call it that. Cliff Kingsbury runs an air raid, but he does some different things than, than maybe like Mike Leach does. He likes to run the ball a little bit more than Mike Leach. We've seen the stats on that. Um, but I just think that the offense will have a better identity now. They'll know what they're trying to do a little bit more. I like this move. I think it's encouraging because I feel like, one, I like Clay in a CEO role. I don't think that he's shown us anything that he can't be a head coach in a CEO role. He is responsible, and I like that Cliff will let him be that and be more of a CEO. I also like it in the sense that I feel like a lot of times it felt like USC was playing in spite of their offensive scheme. You know, they had talent that was trying to like overcome the the deficiencies of the scheme they were running. Now, they it looks like they'll have a scheme that will actually like help them and aid them with their talent. And I want, and I'm curious to see what that looks like when they're actually in something that fits and molds well with their talent and when you let those offensive stars play what actually happens. Yeah, and I'm curious to see how he's going to use the guys that he has because you know, that's part of being a really good coach is being able to mold what you like to do with what your players do well. And I think that Clay Helton, I don't think that he showed us 
in his time as a USC offense coordinator. Now, granted, he was getting plays called by Lane Kiffin. He was getting plays called by Steve Sarkeesian. But I don't think he showed us then that he is, you know, some guru of the X's and O's. I think he could be a solid offense coordinator somewhere, but I don't think he's a guy that everybody's going to be like, man, we got to hire that guy like Kingsbury was. You know, if Clay Helton was to get fired, I don't think there was a bunch of teams lining up to, for him to be their offense coordinator like like Kingsbury was. I think Kingsbury has shown that he is a really good offense coordinator, a really good play caller. Clay Helton could be proficient at that, but I don't think that he excels at that. I mean, he could be solid at it maybe, but I don't think anybody's coming and knocking like, we got to get this guy. If he gets fired, like we're lining up to make sure that we get – no, I don't think that's it. But I think he is potentially even better – as the CEO slash the face of the program. He could easily be the face and not be the one doing all the X's and O's. That's what, yeah, that I think, was my point. I think he can motivate players. I think you, you you hear all the players, how they talk about him. You know, they love him. You know, you, you listen to the parents, you know, they're, you know, of recruits and stuff. He does all those things well. So same as a coach should mold his offense or his defense around his players, I think Clay Helton should mold his head coaching around what he does well. Focus on what you do well and hire other people to do the things you don't do well and, and let them fill in those other, you know, the voids there. And, you know, we've talked about it on the tunnel vision and different things yes. with, with, you know, bringing in Dela McCullough, bringing a guy that is doing really well at, at, you know, at his position or whatever it is. And that wasn't something that USC had done previously. Whereas this hire says, hey, we're going to go out and we're going to find a guy that's best at this position. And they did that. Yeah. It shows that USC is back at the big boy table. Like, hey, we can go out. We can get someone that not only do other colleges want, but NFL teams want. And we got him, you know? And, and I think that um, we've said it, like you said, on Tunnel Visionary thing. We always wanted Clay Hilton to do the Justin Wilcox method. Go out and get people with experience, with the resume that shows that they're successful instead of surrounding yourself with other people who are doing their job for the first time or have uh, less experience. You know, I think this is what we had envisioned going better for Clay Hilton if he had did this. And now I'm curious to see what that looks like going forward now that he has experience and people with the resume surrounding him. Um, but I was going to ask you, you kind of got into this already. What should USC fans expect in the Cliff Kingsbury offense? Three and four wides. You're going to expect that. You're going to be three wide receivers with two running backs. Not a lot of tight ends here. Now, they're, they're tight end. Uh, Dante Thompson, I think he played 300 to 350 snaps total the last two years. So Tyler Petit, uh, you know, I'll look it up here in just a second. Tyler Petit played a lot more than that, and he was splitting time with Josh Follow a lot this season. So I think that you're going to see that the tight end role is going to be diminished. Now, how does he kind of adapt with the roster that USC currently has with Josh Follow? Does he play more of an X role, you know, where you use him as a slot receiver type? You know, how much do you use him as a blocker? Because they'll, they'll do tunnel screens. They'll do the, you know, the stuff on the outside where you want a guy that can block and a tight end outside can do that. And I think Josh Follow can line up outside. You know, they do that a lot with you know, USC's, you know, the offense they've just been running. The tight end split out several times a game. So it's not unusual to have that. But how much does he want to use a tight end in that role versus – a second slot receiver. Do you want Valus Jones and Amon Ross St. Brown in the game in the game at the same time as the slot receivers, or do you want a Josh Follow or uh, you know Jude Wolf or Ethan Ray out there? Uh, that's going to be the question. Or Eric Cromenhook. You know those are the guys that you, you got to look at. Uh, you know Tyler Petit played 513 snaps this year. Josh Follow played as the backup played 226, which I think is around the same much as Thompson played uh, for Texas Tech this past year. So it was it was like 250 for him this year, or 200 to 250 this year, and 100 last year. So that's what you're seeing. Eric Cromanhook played 100. 
so that that's kind of how much the the tight end is going to be used in that system. So we'll see, you know, if that's just short yardage situations. How that's the one thing that I think will be the biggest difference. You'll see more two back sets, but you saw some of that with USC already. I think they're going to do some different things, throw into the receive, throw into the running backs more. Uh, so I think it's just going to utilize their weapons a little bit more. I think they're going to try to get guys in space, let them do their thing, try to create those mismatches that you don't see a lot with USC. And where USC does a really good job of moving a star receiver, a Juju Smith-Schuster around to both sides of the field so teams can't double them, their receivers stay on the same side a lot. Interesting. You know, their, their top guys, you know, one of their, their top receiver this past year, top receptions, I believe, he, all his receptions were on the left side of the field or the middle of the field. So he everything he did was on the left side of the field. He didn't go, you know, they didn't move him in motion and put him on the other side and try to throw to him there. So I, I think you'll see more they'll attack with positions rather than players, if that makes sense. Okay. So they'll attack with this X receiver, this Z receiver, rather than we want to get the ball to Michael Pittman, so we got to move him over here, we got to move him over here to move him away from a top DB or something like that. Interesting. So so I've heard a lot that the, all of USC's wide receivers are happy because this means more rotation in that grouping. Can you see that going forward? Yeah, I could definitely see that. And, and you know how much the rotations, I think – that's something I think that will be discussed with Helton and Kingsbury. You know, talk about, you know, do we want to move guys in a lot? Do we want to? Because if you're going up tempo, and I'm, I'm curious to see how up tempo they go. Is it, you know, is it a strict, you know, Chip Kelly style at Oregon? Are you trying to go really, really fast? Or, you know, how, you know, I think that's a discussion that those two have to have. Is what tempo do we really want to go out? How quickly do we want to go? And because if you're going straight up tempo, you know, play after play after play, you're not subbing much. But then when you do sub, you're subbing in, you know, basically three or four new guys in your skill positions because you want to get fresh legs out there. And that's how you kind of you can wear down a defense because Emon Marshall's on the field and he's going up against whatever defense. Emon Marshall's on the field every single play. Whereas the receiver may rotate in every two or three plays. Yeah. So that's you know how you kind of you can attack. And if you get a 10 to 15 play drive like USC showed in the UCLA game and some of the other things that they can put together longer drives. When they showed that, that's how you can wear teams down, and then you you, know, you can pop the runs in there. You can do a lot of different things. Um, so I'm curious to see the tempo they go at, and we'll see this spring. Because Will it, we? Do yes. you think we'll practice be open this spring? Well, that's a, that's a different question. It should be open. I mean, USC has been known for their open media policy, so it should continue to stay that way. Uh, but we'll see if we are allowed to see practice. We'll see then. Yeah. Because if you want to go that speedy tempo, you know that you know that what, I can't remember what Clay Helton called it um, when they were running their two minute drills and stuff. Uh, but if you want to go that speed, then you're going to have to practice that all the time. That's something that they will have to do over and over and over in spring practice, and which is good because then you get all those repetitions and stuff. And that was when Steve Sarkeesian first came in and he wanted to do that. Yeah, and it was that was what they did in the spring and the fall, and it was yeah. great. That was really good for the players. And then after two games, he's like, yeah, okay, never mind. Let's, let's probably let's not do tone that. tone it down a little bit. Yeah. And that's what I was going to ask you is I know Dan has talked about a lot about how just bringing in Cliff will change the atmosphere of practice. How much can you actually speak to that, though? Because I'm cautious, cautiously optimistic about changes that would occur in practice because of that. Because just going off of what we've seen and how reluctant they've been to change things. And how much does the offseason kind of reckoning apply to practice as well yeah I think it depends and I think that comes from the head coach the head coach is the one that determines the practice plan he's the one that lays out you know we're going to do this period we're going to do this period this period whatever it may be this is how quickly we're going to do it this is when the water what that's his job he just determines all that 
what drills you do during you know a certain period when you do seven on seven, what plays you run, all that stuff, that's when your coordinators take over and stuff. But I think it starts with Clay Hilton. He's the one that has to say, hey, we want to be more physical or we want to hit more or whatever it wants. That's not going to change with Cliff Kingsbury. You know, I, I talked with some people around Texas A&M. Now, granted, Cliff was there for one year, basically. Talked with some people around Texas A&M. They said, yeah, the, kind of the, the knock on those teams was they were soft. So, And the air raid offense is not known as being super physical and going to hit you in the mouth. No, they're going to exploit your weaknesses. They're going to find mismatches, and that's what they do. And that's why it works so well with the lesser schools in conferences. I don't want to demean teams like Washington State or you know, West Virginia or, you know, Texas Tech. But when you're not getting the same caliber of player, if you're West Virginia and you're in the Big 12, you're not getting the same players from Texas that Texas is and Oklahoma are, then you have to do something a little bit different. And I think that offense really works well there. And they've done really well with that from Rich Rod to, to you know, uh, to Dana Holgerson doing, being a little bit different than other teams and finding a way to exploit that. Uh, so now when you have the better players, which USC almost always does in the Pac-12, how do you make sure those mismatches, you're still taking advantage of those with superior athletes? And that's what could be the interesting part. This offense could be out of this world good. I mean, it could be similar to the Patriots. The Patriots always did something different. But then they got Randy Moss. Randy Moss was really, really good in that offense because he was the best wide receiver in the game. So I'm curious to see, you know, you could see something similar like that with USC. You could see, you know, a couple of these players have just tremendous numbers next year if things go the way USC hopes. When would you say was the last dominant offense USC had? What year? <laughs> dominant offense? Like, you know that they're going to put points up. Oh, man. I mean, I'm mean, i putting you on the spot right now. <laughs> it's hard not – my the first thought is just Reggie and, yeah. and uh, Lindell because – they were so fun to watch, and you just knew there's going to be a bunch of points scored. There's been really good offenses in the. I mean, Sanchez was really good. Even you know times with Barkley is uh, the year they couldn't go to a bowl game. They were really good that year too. Yeah. And you have you know when you have multiple weapons like Lee and Woods and uh, Aguilar at different times, that adds such a dynamic to the offense because you can't double that one guy. Yeah, and USC did a really good job. Kiffin did a really good job moving motion and doing a lot of things we just talked about. But if you have Robert Woods over there. And as a freshman, he's garnered a lot of attention. So now his sophomore year, Marquise Lee comes in. Marquise Lee has a giant year because well, we're worried about this guy over here on the left. The guy on the right starts having big games. So when you have multiple weapons, it makes you're that much more difficult to defend. As far as quarterback play co- goes, we got a question from Jason Hernandez who says, with the QB run being a strong component in Cliff's offense, do you foresee the quarterback c- competition opening up again? Mitch from Jersey says, will Jack Sears stay or transfer? Now, that type of offense that Cliff runs was similar to what JT Daniels ran at modern day. Where do you see this all shaking out? So the offense can be, his offense can be perfectly fine with guys that can run and guys that, you know, they're pocket passers. I think it works well, fine either way. I don't think that the QB run is a huge component in it. I don't, I don't know if that's a misconception just because of Johnny Manziel and some of the guys he's had have been athletic. Now he prefers having a guy because most coaches do. If you have an accurate guy that can, you know, when a play breaks down, and I watched some some tape of him in like spring practice with Johnny Manziel, and they was talking about how they were teaching Manziel to go through your, and it was only three reads. It wasn't all five receivers, you know. It wasn't, you know, it was three reads. Go through your three reads. If it's not there, then start to scramble and see if something comes open. Then, so they were actively wanting him to do that. Now with JT, I don't think they'll do that. With Jack Sears, maybe that's something they do. But it's not like it's a huge thing. 
I mean, Alan Bowman was the primary quarterback at Texas Tech. He ran 18 times on non-scrambles. He ran 23 times total. Jeff Duffy, now, Jet Duffy, he actually ran 40 times, 27 of them were called runs. But in 2017, they had 24 total QB runs. USC had 18 this year. So it's wow. not like it was like a giant, you know, it's not like they're running, you know, 100 times a season and USC's running 20. So I, I, think that the, I think that's a little bit of a misconception. I think if he has a mobile quarterback, he will take advantage of it. And I, I think he'll teach guys up, like, he, like I just said with Manziel, where instead of, hey, we need you to go through five progressions, one, two, three, if it's not there, scramble around, see if something opens up, and then go from there. Uh, so I, I think that he does a good job of – and one of the things that I haven't been able to watch a ton of tape yet, that's something I want to do during the offseason is watch some of the Texas Tech games from, that are on ESPN3 or whatever from this past year. But from what I've seen so far, he does a really good job of allowing his players to be good. So putting them in situations and then focusing on what they're good at instead of you know, saying, this is our offense, you got to figure it out. It's, okay, I see what you're doing there. Let's try to mold something around what you do good. Uh, and I think that was something when I was talking with a former USC offensive lineman that he really liked about Drevno when, uh, you know, cause he had had a different couple different coaches cause every offensive lineman <laughs> yeah. the last six years has had several coaches. He told me he liked Drevno the best because he thought that Drevno did a really good job of focusing on what you were good at and putting you in situations where you could succeed. And that's something that we had complained about a lot this season with USC's offense is like you put a guy like uh, Devin Williams in the Stanford game, his first play of college, you throw him a deep ball that he can barely touch. You know, it's things like that that drove us insane that if you're a USC (laughs) fan, you should be excited that uh, USC has someone that will look at the strengths and try and play to those. Um, Yeah, if you you have Jerome Bettis, you don't try to run outside zone runs with him uh, on the edge. You don't run... The, the big toss sweeps with, without lead blockers and stuff. I mean, there, there's certain things that you got to do to put your guys in the right situations. Ronald Jones was really good with one cut. But don't try to make him into, you know, or he's got to make a bunch of reads and stuff. Let him let the play run out. You know, those outside zones were really good for him because he could wait, 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 and as soon as he saw an opening, put his foot in the ground and go. So you got to find ways to excel. Now, at the, the same time, you're not just doing that. You also want your players to be developing and, and enhancing their skill set. So development? What is that? That would be a good thing. <laughs> uh, so Kingsbury's done a really good job of quarterbacks. He's also going to be the quarterbacks coach. So we'll see how USC's uh, you know quarterbacks develop. And I think that he's going to come in. And I don't think Jack Sears is going to transfer because if you leave now, you're sitting out next year regardless. Yeah. So why not see what you can learn from Kingsbury? Especially now, I would assume those three guys are excited. Yeah. Because you know that. Even if they say that JT's the starter, there's still a little bit of a competition because you got a new guy coming in. Happens every year. When there's a new position coach coming in, didn't matter if if there would have been a new cornerbacks coach this year. Emar Marshall would have still been battling with people because you've got to prove yourself to the new guy. So I, I think that and I mean you saw that with like Kenny Bigelow. Kenny Bigelow was the veteran of that group and you know everyone expected he would step in, but he and KU never saw eye to eye. He didn't never he never earned those uh playing uh, that playing time with him. He went to West Virginia and had a really good uh, season this year. Uh, so I think that when the new coach coming in, those three guys got to assume that, all right, I, I got a shot to win this job. And then I think that, you know, seeing the quarterbacks that have worked for him before and how well they have succeeded in their careers, 
they got to be excited. Like, man, I, I got a QB guru basically coming in. I'm excited to, to play with this guy and, and get an opportunity to, to see what I can learn from him. And that's the benefit of having fresh blood in the system, like a fresh pool of water in there, because you're not with, I mean, T. Martin had been there forever. You know, you already, he already knew who you were. When you have someone new, it, it gives some life. You can, you would want to raise your level of competition because you want to impress the new guy, you know, and yep. that always helps. Um, but what would you say, for USC fans who are a little bit like, mm, Air Raid, come on, this is USC. Tradition. So, you know, abandoning tradition, you know, I think the game is abandoning tradition. Uh, you know, it's time to get over it a little bit. You see the Rams, they're not running pro sets. The Patriots haven't been running the same pro sets. They've been taking advantage of their slot receivers and how well they can get open. You know, it, it's it's different game. And now there's some teams, Stanford does really well by running their the power attacks. And that's different now. But how many teams are still running the wing tee? How many teams are still running the single wing? How many teams are running you know, straight single back all the time with the quarterback under center? No, the game evolves. And especially the way the rules have changed, you have to realize that it's not about sticking to your guns and staying the same. as Student body right is not the same anymore because there's different rules involved now and the pass interferences and the different things that, you know, the, a lot of the rules have been tailored for college football and especially the NFL – towards offensive play. So is that for running plays? No, that's for the passes for, you know, they run the, the screen plays and the, you know, the, um, the illegal screens is not the pick plays and stuff. Those don't get called that much. USC never used those much. So why would you not use stuff like that? And you get called for it once in the game, whatever you get over it and you get a big play on it a couple plays later. It's fine. Uh, so I, I think that I don't think it's so much a banning tradition, that, that, but the game is changing, and you've got to you've got to change with it. You've got to evolve or die. I mean, that's always the saying. So you know, USC has to see an evolution as well. Now, can USC still run the ball really well? That sure, but USC hasn't been the same, you know, power running team that they you know they people want to be from the seventies. Ronald Jones ran for a ton of yards, fifteen hundred yards. He didn't do it out of a power set. It is zone read and stuff. I mean, it's different. Now, do you want them to do that? Hey, maybe maybe they sh- they should practice some of that, especially for goal line situations. But uh, I, I don't think that you should be all up in arms if the offense is changing. If the offense is successful, what does it matter? Exactly. Our friends over at Rand and Troy had a great find. They found an article, I think, from the LA Times when after USC went five and seven, and and Pete Carroll brought in Norm Chow. They were like, Norm Chow is bringing spread concepts, and they were like, Oh my god! <laughs> so it's just funny. Things change. Uh, I think after a five and seven season like USC had, you just want a successful offense. I think that will be good. Yes. Yeah. Yes. I mean, I talked about <laughs> the tweet that I had. You know, would you would USC fans would you rather win or would you rather have tradition? You know. Yeah. It's a great question, and I think you want to win after given this season, especially after going five and seven. Yep. Um. So we have a lot of questions. I made it its own section about coaching Ooh. changes. So a lot of people, uh, Ryan Taylor says, will Cliff bring his offensive coordinator and assistant coaches with him? Seems like it'll be a reasonable thing to do in order to change culture. Dave Carson says, is there any chance that more coaching changes are coming? Joseph says, SC still looking to get a new defensive coordinator. All these things, coaching changes. Do you think it's settled now? No, of course not, because you still have openings for one. Yes. Um, So now could... Current guys that are on the staff that have not been fired, could they still could there still be changes there? I believe so. Because you have to, you know, you have to come in if you're Cliff Kingsbury and you know, maybe he had one meeting on campus with Helton or with Swan or whoever it was. 
He's not sitting down and interviewing all the, you know, Kerry Colbert and Tim Drevno when he comes in to interview himself. So he's got to come in and see, you know, I got to, you know, I'll come in and I'll, maybe he puts them in the classroom and see, hey, what do you guys know? You know, what do you guys like to do? Try to find out about it, like you would a player. You know, he's got to get to know the players, got to get to go know the coaches. And then the question will become if he has that full autonomy over the staff, does he like Kerry Colbert? Does he like Tim Drevno? Does he decide, you know what, I, I think that I have a better fit for this from guys that I already know. So I think there still could definitely be changes there. And we've heard rumblings about the defense coordinator spot too. As of now, Clancy is still the, the defense coordinator. Uh, you know, if there is a change there, if he, you know, being a, you know, with an NFL background as prominent as he has, you know, as a Super Bowl defense coordinator, there could be someone come and you know offer him a job, or he could seek out a job. And if that happens, then yeah, the whole defensive staff could get shaken up, uh, shooken up once more. Uh, you still got to get hire a defensive line coach. We'll see where they go with that. Maybe that tells us a little bit about if the if the defense coordinator position is still uh, is still something that may be up in uh, a flux a little bit. Because if they hire you know a guy like Austin Clark, who we've you know heard his name thrown out there, who was a former GA at U, at USC, who was also you know, played for Clancy at Cal and coached under him previously, then that tells you that Clancy's probably coming back because that's the guy that Clancy wants. Now, if they go out and hire somebody completely different, it's, you know, completely off the wall, doesn't seem to mesh, you know, personality-wise with Clancy, then maybe you're like, whoa, okay, maybe there's something else going on here. Or maybe there's nothing happens, and then if you wait and wait and wait on these coaching uh, decisions, that might also tell you something about the defense coordinator spot too. How much do you think it's so interesting to me because this is the second year of early the early signing period and right now it seems to be throwing kind of a wrench into things as far as timing goes with USC because they're juggling a little bit. Is it going to be all quiet on the Western Front right now until you get over that hump of early the early signing period and then we might see more dominoes fall? You know, I think if you if you're Clay Helton, you are actively seeking out your position coaches and your coordinators and everything. You want to get your staff done as soon as you can. However, the rest of the staff has to go about as you know business as usual. If you're Kerry Colbert, you can't worry about okay, well, is you know, am I going to be replaced? No, you got to go out and you got to recruit your tight ends, you got to recruit the slot receivers, and you know, you just assume that it is going as it is because you can't worry about what might happen. You've just got to continue to coach because there's not that there's not a big you know three week dead period or something after the season and before signing day. No, it's a it's a a big time of year right now because the the early signing day will eventually take over as the signing day. And the more and more athletes that want to sign early, the more and more uh, it becomes a, a prominent thing. But I think it's going that way. And you're seeing the coaches know that as soon as this regular season ends, they got to get out there on the recruit uh, on the recruiting trail and try to drum up as much attention and drum up as much interest as they can and try to get those guys that they've been going after, you know, they've been talking to all season. Now they get a chance to go and in-home visits and all the other stuff and, you know, try to wrap up as much as you can. We have a question from SC Mike who says, what do you think about Reggie Bush for running backs coach? No Serious thanks. question. No, thanks. Why? You got to give an answer. Why? When is he, well, who is he coached? Yes. Because he was really I, yeah. good as a player. I mean, OJ was really good. You want him coming as the running backs coach? No. Rant, do you want rant, Charles rant, White? Rant. No, I mean, you, USC should not be the place that you go to learn how to coach. Now, if Reggie Bush goes to UC San Diego or, or uh, University of San Diego, coaches there, does really well. San Diego State? No, U University of San Diego. Jim Harbaugh. Okay. Jim Harbaugh did that and then went to Stanford. Obviously, I'm you know, now. if you go somewhere and prove yourself and then come to USC, but USC should not be the place you learn how to coach, which is why 
the hiring of Clay Helton was not done correctly, in my opinion. Yes. We also have a question from Big Bully 22 who says, is Kingsbury going to be calling plays from the box or the sideline? He's too animated to be sitting in a box for three hours. Now, I haven't had a chance to look back at the Houston and Texas A&M days to find out exactly where he was. Uh, when I saw this question, I was like, oh, I wish I had a chance to look up some tape. I assume he's going to be on the sideline. You know, I, I think, it, you know, from being a head coach and being on the sideline the last, what, three, four, five years, I think he's going to want to stay down there. And, you know, he's comfortable with calling plays from there and, and seeing things that way. I think he is, you know, he's friends with Sean McVay. If you watch McVay during a game, McVay gets way down the field, back behind the secondary and everything. They really pointed out this the last game they played uh, for a little segment. But he gets way down the field and watches the defense from behind, like he would be, like he would be watching from tape. And not up high above them, but you know he's basically getting an idea of how they're rotating and doing different things. I think that Kingsbury, you know, has a similar mind from the way that I've seen them talk about certain things. It seems like they're very similar in, in you know, how they kind of attack uh, the things on the football field and how they kind of attack d- defenses and the way they're trying to learn defenses. So I, I think that, I think he'll be on the field. Um, but like I said, let me go back and look at Texas A&M and Houston and get back to you guys on that one in a future episode. Yeah, we still have to do a deep dive on. Oh, on Cliff. I didn't even plan that. Sorry. Oh, my goodness. I, was, I didn't. Um, we also had multiple <laughs> questions about uh, strength and conditioning. Dave have you Kaysen? ever jumped off a cliff? I think I actually have. Okay. What What's your definition of a cliff? What's the height range? I don't know. I jumped off one that was about 10 feet high and nearly died. Fun. Yeah. <laughs> Got swept overboard. Got oh gosh! No, I, I definitely top. think I have, but I'm I'm not into heights. Got my heights freak me out. Stuck up underneath the log. Oh gosh! Oh yeah, I literally could have drowned, but oh no, unfortunate that you that you're here. <laughs> Just kidding. Wow. Boo-boo. Point for Keely. Okay, strength and <laughs> Did you conditioning. Have a soundboard over there. <laughs> no, we don't today. Uh, strength and conditioning. We had a lot of questions about this. PC fan Dave Kaysen, Marty uh, Chagrin. Chagrin? I don't know how to say your last name. He says, why do they keep their strength and conditioning coach when the AD admits the culture is soft? So are there any changes that we foresee happening in strength and conditioning? We haven't heard of any rumors as of yet. Um, I, that I've said, you know, I said with Clancy Pendergrass, and I really like Clancy Pendergrass, but if you go five and seven, everyone is available to be fired. You know, it, it is grounds for firing when you go five and seven at USC. Uh, you know, it's not, shouldn't happen. So if you're worried about, uh, you know, we're just not tough enough, we're not, yeah, you start with the strength and conditioning. You start there, that also goes, and if you're not going to fire the head coach, you know, that's where it starts as well. It starts from the top, but also the strength and conditioning because those are the guys that are with them the most in the offseason. So I would make changes if for no other reason just to make changes because you went five and seven. Yeah, I agree. Because you can't be great at it if you're still going five and seven. I mean, I think it's interesting. This seem I don't think we necessarily talked about strength and conditioning towards the end of the season, towards the firings. But this is something that I feel like the fan base is really locked on to is, is the I mean, problems it's been there. Consistent, especially with all the injuries too. And if you want to blame that on strength and conditioning, I don't. I don't I'm not I'm sure gonna... about that, but I I think it's interesting because this is something that we talked about last season and a couple seasons before. When you look at pro day. And you look at how guys change their bodies when they're not at USC. You look at other programs when they do bench press and stuff like that. USC's offensive line has has consistently done poorly in that area, you know, when compared to other schools and programs. So I think it's something that needs to change. And something that we've also talked about a lot is 
is this something that Lynn Swan and the athletic department really want to put their their money into it? You know, they, they talk a lot about culture change, but do they really want to put the resources into that? And I don't know if they want to invest the money into the program the way you're looking at it that way. Um, but you can still hire another strength and conditioning coach and maybe just a different, you know, someone different yelling at you changes things. Now, Clay thinks that Ivan Lewis is great. And, you know, when you talk to the players, a lot of them are always, you know, when they they have gains and stuff and you talk to them about it, like, yeah, Ivan Lewis, Ivan Lewis. But I'm saying if you're going five and seven and you believe that your team is soft and literally other teams are calling you soft in the Arizona State game, literally calling across at the defense, you guys are just soft. And not just the players, but some of their staff members calling your team soft. You got to make some kind of change. Now, if your defense is getting yelled at and your defense coordinator stays and your strength and condition coach stays and your head coach stays, then what change is going to happen? Yeah, I agree. Are they going to suddenly do something different? Are they going to bring in some Marines and you know they're going to follow these Marine tactics and stuff and do something? Maybe. They've tried to do that before. But they've got to do something different. And if that involves changing you know, the head of the strength and conditioning, then so be it. Um, finally, before we move into the schedule, the 2019 schedule. And again, oh. I don't know. I'm not in there working out with them. I can't tell you that Ivan Lewis is a bad strength and conditioning coach. Because it's also two-way. You you have the coach, but players have to buy in. Yeah. Players have to do it and nutrition and all that. Yeah, so that has to happen. But if you're keeping the head coach, then that's, you know, one of those two things. Those are your two the two tops of the pyramid, the head coach and the strength and conditioning when it comes to this type of thing. So the head coach has to provide the culture, but the strength and conditioning coach has to get that, you know, has to be able to motivate and do everything else. So if your players aren't buying in, you have to change something. I would agree. Now, this might be just snarky Twitter talking. Snarky Twitter talk. <laughs> New segment. Um, but I feel like, I think the star power of Cliff is a good thing for USC to be like, hey, we're back on the market when they've made hires where people are like, who? But I've seen snarky Twitter kind snarky of been like, <laughs> they've been like, what does it say if your offensive coordinator has more star power than your head coach? Blah, blah, blah. You know, that's my snarky Twitter uh, voice. Snarky Twitter talk. But it's something like this why Helton, for the first time around, didn't want to hire people with um, star power or experience like that. What do you mean by star power? That he's he's pretty? I mean, <laughs> is that it? No, that's not what I mean by that. I am exploring snarky Twitters. Snarky Twitter talk. This is not my personal belief. He might overshadow Clay. People are like, oh, you hired your replacement, okay. Clay. Gotcha. Like that. That's what you mean. Yes. You know, I, I think you get to a point where it doesn't matter because if you don't win, you're going to be gone anyways. So, you know, when True. you start out, maybe you think, I'm going to get the people I know around me and it's all... You know, close people they knew and literally family, you know, extended family. And then guys like T. Martin and Johnny Nansen, who he's grown up with at USC, you know, they've been with him for five or six years, I believe, on the staff. So I think there is comfortability in people that you know and trusting, you know, the people around you, which makes it and going to get Clancy Pendergast, someone you've worked with before and bringing him in. I think that's much different. Uh, you know, and when you hire a coordinator, that makes it it can be that much more difficult because coordinators are basically the next step away from the head coach. But I don't think that he's like looking over his shoulder, worried about who's behind him. I think it was more a comfortability as a first time head coach trying to find guys. And now he realizes, look, I can't I can't 
continue with what I've been doing. I can't continue with the comfortability. I've got to get someone that I know is going to improve facet A, facet B, facet C because they've struggled. And at five and seven, you are close to being fired. True. I think that 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 trumps everything else. More than worrying about star power or anything else, I think it's worrying about your job and worrying about if you don't get some competent uh, over, not, not competent, but really good people in, then you're going to have the similar results and you're going to be out. Yeah. And there goes your two, three, four million dollar job every year because being a coach gets you paid. Paid? Yeah. I would sort of agree with that. I also think there's a little bit that Clay was, might have been reluctant to bring in people that maybe could have questioned him or what he wanted to do. Maybe. I just don't feel like he's, he has that type of personality necessarily. I just think that he's more of a, comfortability person yeah. he trusts people that he knows and he's worked with before and i'm just not sure how to read it because i base that also off of how he handled when things went wrong this season where he wouldn't change toa or he wouldn't change practice or something like that like he, he there was reluctance to admit hey maybe we we did get this wrong we need to change it we never saw that so that makes me wonder well does that go farther in you know the, on the inside if you have a coach coming in and saying like hey what you're thinking is not what we should do. I don't know. It's just something that I've thought about. I think when you get back into the corner, you you turn, you change a little bit. Yeah, you know, I would agree. Like a wild animal. You put them in the corner and they're going to lash out. Whereas normally they might try to back away in fear or something. Uh, I think that you're seeing him change his, his actions because he has to. Yeah, which I think is a good thing for him and USC going forward. Yeah. Moving on to the 2019 USC schedule. It was released this week. Um, just going down really quick. First off, Fresno State to start off the season. Then Stanford at home, at BYU, Utah at home, at UW in Seattle, by week, at Notre Dame. Then you face Arizona at home. Then go back out on the road to Colorado. Come back, face the Ducks. Go back out to ASU. Go back out to Cal. And then you come back. Uh, for a final home game against UCLA, and then you have another bye week after that. So two bye weeks this season, which is interesting. Maybe you have another bye week. Interesting, yes. Considering, considering this week, this year they could have had, you know, they would have a bye week if they were in the Pac-12 championship game. Otherwise, their regular season just ends a week earlier. True. It could be a 5-7 and seven season. And then the whole season ends a week earlier rather yep. than just the regular season. Um, the One of the first things that stands out is that they play their first two games at home. They're not at home two weeks in a row again. Even though they have bye weeks, they're not at home two weeks in a row unless they are going to the Pac-12 Championship and taking advantage of that last week of the regular season. So they they go at Washington. They're home for a bye week, but then they're at Notre Dame. Those two games back to back is a you know that's probably the turning point in the season one way or the other. Um, Granted, you are having a Friday night home game against Utah, so you do get another day before you dub, but still, it's rough. It's a rough stretch. I mean, just the fact that you're not home two weeks in a row after the first two weeks of the season is just kind of crazy to me. Yeah. Uh, so that kind of stood out. I mean, those first, what, five, six games are, you know, a really tough sledding, and how they come out of that made a turn. I mean, after six games, I think you'll know the fate of Clay Helton. Which is crazy. Yeah. I, I mean, mean, how much how much can Clay say, hey, look, I did the hard thing. I got a new offensive coordinator. We have a tough first half. We're still gelling. Give me some time. How much can you can you have those excuses built in already? I mean, 
I think that's become his trend, and I think you got to get over that. You've got to change again. That's another thing you need to change: the trend of starting slow and getting better as the season progresses. At least that's what you want to do, and you didn't do it this year. Yeah, because this year they could have done the same thing and been nine and three if they win those close games, which they didn't. So one thing they got to do next year: they have to win the close games, which is what Helton had been really good at. Now you're going to go on the road at Washington, and then on the road at Notre Dame, and those two games will determine, you know. The trajectory of the season, you know, they're not they're not gonna get blown out those two games and win every other game really well. That's not gonna happen. Yeah, you'll know a lot. You you know everything about this team after those two games. I think that's the 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 mountain peak of the schedule. That yeah, it's definitely a, you know a road up, road down type of thing. Uh, and that that trip to BYU is not gonna be easy either. I mean, I think people Fresno are, oh, State too. And Fresno State's okay, but, but you're they're at not. Home. They're not the Fresno State of 2015 or 2014. Which the one at <laughs> the one at home? <laughs> okay, gotcha. Fun fact: that was the last game that I watched from the USC student section. Gerald Bowman interception. So yeah, I mean it's going to be tough, but you're going to be playing at home. You're playing with an offense that they don't, they can't fully prepare for. So I don't, I don't think that. I think they'll win that game. Yeah, I'm just saying it's not going to be easy. Yeah, I'm not. I don't, I'm not worried about that. Are you that worried one. about UNLV? And that was. A field goal palooza by USC. I mean, I was just going through my my photos today, trying to clean up some, organize some stuff. Uh, sent out Kelly a picture of herself and some other random photos <laughs> that I have of just random people from the sidelines and stuff. But <laughs> there was one photo of the the peristyle, the scoreboard. It was the beginning of the fourth quarter of the Western Michigan game when it was twenty one to twenty one. They haven't done well in the beginning of the first game, so yeah, Fresno State could beat them. But I think I'm more. You know, people are talking about the Fresno State game. I think that BYU game at BYU is is very underrated game, uh, that or overlooked game at this point. Really? At okay. this point? Yeah. Because I think people, people are talking about the road games at Washington, at at Notre Dame, maybe even at Cal. You know, at Colorado. At Colorado, hey, they don't play in November this time. But I think that people are looking at those road games much more than that BYU game. That BYU game could kind of be a little bit of a trap because you're coming off the physical game against Stanford where USC Body always blow theory. where USC always gets injured. And they've been really bad after their Stanford games, if I remember correctly. So um, you know, I think that that's one. And then maybe even looking forward to the Friday game uh, afterwards. So you know how they had you – know, you the Pac-12 didn't want the – Pac-12 road game followed by a Friday road game. Well, USC is going to have road game at BYU and then come home on a Friday versus Utah. That's a tough little back-to-back as well. Their trip to Colorado is on a Friday night as well. So you know it's going to be a night game. It's going to be cold there too. Uh, So there are a lot of challenges in that schedule. And that's not – we haven't even said that, hey, they're switching out Washington State for Washington and Oregon State for Oregon. Yeah. Washington State, Washington, hey, you can say that, that that's somewhat of a wash, but Oregon State, Oregon, that's a huge difference. <laughs> huge difference. Especially if Herbert comes back. Yes. Which is still to be determined. TBD. You could potentially know your fate in the Pac-12 with Stanford and Utah. I think it's really interesting that Utah is up so high, you know, because in some other years, that's been the, the decider of the South, Utah-USC. So I'm curious what that will do. I mean, the first six games, like we said, I think that's really difficult and will decide the fate. I mean, the Utah game being up high is not the first time. I mean, Sam Darnold, when he took over, that was the fourth game of the year. Um, and, you know, True. And that was at Utah. So, but a lot of times it has been a deciding factor in the South because those two teams have been the two at the top. So I think USC could be in a huge hole if they start out 0 2. I don't know if you're getting out of that one because you still have to go to Washington and you still have to play Oregon. Not to mention any of the other Pac 12 South teams, but. 
those two are, are two of the best from the from the north. So you know you have to start out good. You have to have a successful first two games in conference, or you probably don't have a chance. So in that sense, how should USC fans? What should their expect expectations be in 2019? Should they kind of be cautiously optimistic, optimistic, given that the schedule's so hard? I mean, they're gonna there's gonna be high expectations for Cliff. If mm-hmm. things aren't gelling and you have a tough schedule, how much whose fault is that? I mean, it, it, you'll you'll be able to see based on the play, but yes, instead of being cautiously optimistic, I, I would be scared if I was USC fans looking at that schedule because that does not look like you're gonna have a successful season. No. Now you come in, your your offense is, hey, how how much better does the offense have to be than this past year, and you know point wise for you to have a really good season? If you're what fourteen points better, if you score two more touchdowns a game, yeah, then you're probably going to win a lot more games than five. You're gonna you're gonna at least win nine, probably win ten or eleven, if you score two more touchdowns per game, because the defense is probably going to be very similar. You know, if they go with a full up tempo, the defense is going to give up some more yards and a little bit more points. But if you're scoring two more touchdowns, that makes a huge difference. So uh, I think that you should look at that schedule and be like, oh my goodness, how how do we get through September and the beginning of October? If you want to throw that Notre Dame game in there, six games, you could realistically be one in five. Oh boy, and you, you wouldn't you would have a new and then drop the rest. What do you? What do you? Where are you? I mean, I'm then? not saying who they would win or lose, okay. but you could realistically be one and five. Like that, you can't look at that schedule and be like, no, there's no way they'd be one and five. You could be like, yeah, that that's plausible. I mean, people didn't think they would go five and seven this season, and then yeah, look I, at that. Hey, you, I can be blamed on that one. I said the floor was seven and five, and I was wrong. But you did know there's the basement. I also did not real think that they would lose the close games like they did after you know how successful they had been previously. Didn't think you would lose to Arizona State again. Give me those three defensive players, and that's worth three points. Mm. Uh, but you lose to UCLA. I did not see that coming at all at the beginning of the season. This is my yes, preseason yes, stuff. Okay. Like looking at that, like there's because there's not enough talent on that UCLA team to beat USC. USC has to beat itself, and they did to an yeah. extent. We have a question from Gary who says, "Is there are there any plans for the USC administration to start challenging the system systemic scheduling disadvantage that USC and other Pac-12 schools have on being competitive at on a national level? Example compared to the SEC, which has softer out of conference schedule, more home games, etc." Highly doubt it. Yeah, highly doubt it. For one, the USC administration and other Pac-12 schools still have not gotten rid of Larry Scott, and Larry Scott is terrible at his job. But you guys just wouldn't understand because you don't understand they're a media company and a uh, conference. I roll. Oh my god, I was I was very upset when I heard that. It's very, very. Uh, I got warm actually. My body, <laughs> my body heat increased because I was yeah. red in the face, raging, red raging. Because that was a very, uh, very demeaning comment there. Uh, but I, I just don't think that we haven't seen. The USC administration really, no, we haven't even heard rumors of it. They're like, no, we're not playing two Friday games. We're not doing it. ASU has three Friday games and a Thursday game. So now the Pac-12 schedule is probably the toughest schedule in the country to put together. Now, a couple other places in the, in the, in the country where there are shared stadiums, there's issues there. Um, but the Pac-12 schedule, because... USC wants to play Notre Dame every year. Stanford wants to play Notre Dame every year. Okay, well, they have to schedule around that. They have nine conference games instead of eight like the SEC. 
hey, all the conferences that have been left out of the BCS, I mean, out of the college football playoff, all all from uh, conferences that have nine conference games. Just random fact there. But if you have nine conference games, it makes it that more, much more difficult. Now you've got the cross games and stuff. So the scheduling is not simple. And then to try to fulfill the TV you know, decisions that you poor decisions you made by saying, yeah, we'll give you Friday games. We'll give you Thursday games. We'll give you, and making all these concessions to TV instead of saying, you know, we'll, we'll consider it. But also you have Arizona, Arizona schools can't play during the day in, you know, certain months, you know, the Washington schools, they don't want to play at night late in the season because there's such very, very climates in this conference. In part, there are scheduling challenges there. And those are things that each school has, you know, said, hey, you know, we can't play. We can't play a one o'clock game in, you know, September if we're Arizona. Like that's no, that's player safety. You know, even though we had to cover a game where it's supposedly 136 on the field. Supposedly uh, it was. Supposedly. Uh, so, you know, there, each school has little concessions like that. Uh, so I, I think that it makes it really difficult to do the, the Pac-12 scheduling. So I will say that that is a challenge. However, you haven't seen the USC administration just like, no, we're not doing that. So then why would you think they would start challenging it now? Yeah, I would hold, don't hold your breath on those. Hey, USC wants to continue having that streak of not playing an FCS team. And granted, there are teams around they can play. There are lesser conference uh, teams. They can play Mountain West teams. They can play, you know, those type of schools. So... They're, they want to have those big games too. They want the fans to be excited about going to Texas, you know, to, you know, playing those schools, playing Georgia. You know, that was once supposed to happen, and then Georgia backed out. Uh, you, you have those built in because that, that's really big for the fan base. They want to see those. They want to come to a Texas at USC, you know, a rematch of the, the Vince Young, Matt Leiner. Fans want to come to that. The place was packed. So, yeah, you want to schedule those. But – how much does it affect your your potential of being and making extra money by being in a playoff or you know by increasing your bowl game? Those are things that are are difficult to assess, and we haven't seen the administration change what they're doing currently. So I don't think I wouldn't say with the current administration they're not going to change. Now you look at now we talked about Georgia uh, and the fact that they were going to play USC when they got a new athletic director in. He said, no, 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 we're not traveling across the country. We're going to play Georgia Southern. We're going to play, you know, maybe we'll play, if we want to play a tough game, we'll play Clemson. We're not going across the country. Like, that doesn't make sense for us. And they completely changed their out-of-conference schedule because they were supposed to play Oregon, I believe, as well. They had a couple of other West Coast trips in there, and they said a new athletic director came in and said, no, we're going to have to get out of all these contracts because we that's not happening anymore. All I got to say is just stop scheduling Alabama. That's my opinion. <laughs> stop it. Stop okay doing. with it. Just wait till Nick Saban's gone. Yeah, but he's not gone. <laughs> not yet. We have two more questions, and then we're going to wrap this podcast All up. Right. Rex says, why does the USC Athletic Administration value familiarity over results, track record, slash competency? This, is, I, this could go in the last one. I highly doubt it, and I don't know. Uh, because, because it's kind of the old boy kind of country club kind of uh, mentality there, and, you know, People that have power don't want to cede power, and to make a lot of changes, a lot of times you have to give away a little bit of power to do it, and I don't think that they want to do that. Yeah, I would agree with that. And then AV365, he gets the word for not anything to do with Cliff Kingsbury or 
relevant things right now. He says, who starts in the defensive backfield next season, in your opinion? Any chance SE goes after a grad transfer at cornerback or safety? Uh, I just, I mean, it probably would help. It would definitely help with their depth, especially with the guys that are recruiting right now. There's not a lot of uh, defensive backs on the board for them, and they're in serious contention for but I would think Greg Johnson and then Elijah Griffin or Isaac Taylor Stewart, I think that's your, your starting cornerbacks. This is assuming everyone's healthy because there's a lot of banged-up people on here. Nickelback, Chase Williams, I think he proved himself in that game at safety. I think yeah. he's going to be your nickelback. Talanoa, when he comes back, he's definitely going to be starting at safety. And then I think Isaiah Polamau or C.J. Pollard because you know I've got concerns about Isaiah Polamau when you destroy your sh- same shoulder twice as a safety and you're expected to come up and hit guys and tackle. I'm I'm, wor- I'm yeah I'm worried about that injury becoming something that affects him more and more. So I I think that's your your run right there. You know if they get a grad transfer, I mean how many times you've seen them do it? Once Stevie Tuikolavatu. I mean it's not like they're going out. That's not something that this coaching staff is like. That's a priority for them. They go out and get a bunch of JUCO transfers or you know older transfers and stuff. You don't see that very often from this staff. So I don't think that that is going to happen. Yeah. Uh, and we'll dive into those things more in the future uh, depth charts and whatnot as we go along in the off season. Um, but that's going to wrap it up for this podcast. You know, it keeps popping in my head. Click, cliff, hooray. Like hip, hip, hooray. <laughs> I don't know why. It just keeps <laughs> popping in my head. Too much caffeine. I know. Too much caffeine. Alrighty. That's Shotgun. I'm Keely. We'll see you guys next week. Peace.